Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast, episode 1024. This is my interview with Liz Wiseman. We're discussing her work and her newest book, Impact Players. Enjoy. Hey, Liz, welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. Great to have you here today. Well, Lee, it's uh, good to be here. We'll say uh, humbly, take two, huh? My, my error. We are now recording. You are um, over there in California. I am here in Menlo Park, California, San Francisco Bay Area, and it is winter, but the skies are blue and beautiful. Is that what sort of temperature we got? Oh, I can't, I can't calculate over to Celsius very Thanks fast, you. but yeah, no, no, I, I so you can me do neither. the calculation for me, but we're, it's temperate. It's like a, a California winter day. It's in like 60 degrees. 60 degrees Fahrenheit, hey? Let's just, uh. Test this out quickly. That's about 15 degrees. Yeah, it's fairly cool. And what time of the afternoon is it there? It is 4.24 in the afternoon here. So, uh, you know, it'll start to get dark soon. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, we don't get the winters like you get there. We are in summer here and it's uh, got the monsoon wet coming through here on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. So, yeah. Um, and I love that Australia and the U.S. are on opposite seasons because I ha- I've been back and forth to Australia several times. And I have to admit, I have a favorite clothing store there yeah. that I like to get their stuff when it's off season, like your season's ending and everything's on sale. And it's right before the season for us. Right. So it works out nice. A little bit of uh, shopping arbitrage. Yeah. What, uh, what shop is that? Can I ask a little plug for those guys? Well, there's two, Saba. Mm. Uh-huh. Did I get that right, Saba? And I don't know. <laughs> Witchery, maybe? They're just two that yeah. I stumbled into when I was there on a trip once. So Yeah, nice. I don't go shopping too much, so I can't really comment. But um, look, welcome to the podcast. Um, probably to put it in context, we'll start by giving you an opportunity to give us your background and what you do with yourself, and then we can delve in. You've written a lot of books too, so we can delve into some of your work and see if we can get some takeaways for the audience listening. So what do you do? What's your background? Well, um, my back, well, what I do is I'm a researcher. So like the simple way to describe my work today is I research, I write, I teach, repeat. So that is the cycle I'm constantly in is, you know, am I in research mode, trying to answer a question, writing a book or sharing some of the ideas from the book. And so I love that cycle. I love getting to continue to find answers to questions about leadership management, the workplace, how to have a great work experience, how to build a great team. How to so build all about all about leadership and workplaces. Is that sort of the basis of your research? Yeah, I think the the common thread in my work is how do we create a work experience that is productive, where people can contribute and do their best work and do great work, but also have a great experience, like. A great workplace where people do brilliant work, and I'm looking at that from a lot of different angles. Okay, yeah, and that's pretty important, yeah? Like you want to be able to go to work and work in a workplace that's culturally sound and enjoyable, but also a workplace that um, allows you to thrive, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think for me, I, I love work. I've always loved work. And, you know, work of all kinds, physical work, mental work. Um, I love work. And I want everyone to love their work experience. Now, I'm not suggesting that people should be workaholics or define themselves by their work, but work consumes 
a pretty big chunk of our existence. And uh, I think it should be hard and extremely rewarding. Like I want the work experience to be like a great workout where you're tired, but you feel energized. Like it's, it's regenerative, not exhausting. Yes. Yes. Um, it's interesting that you, you know, you say you like work. I mean, you said you always liked work. You've always been a worker since a young girl. Like what's, what's the story there? Well, I started work at 13 years old. I am the yeah. daughter of a donut maker and my dad had a donut shop. Yeah, that's and be tough. I, you know, I, I, it's pretty good when your dad has a donut shop. You are definitely the most popular family on the block. For sure, yes. you know, because my dad would bring home all the extra donuts. Like we never had the fresh donuts, but we had an Always abundance <laughs> of day old donuts. And um, yeah, it wasn't until like, you know, I went into another donut shop. I'm like, oh yeah, fresh donuts are good. But I started working there at 13 and probably actually younger folding boxes. I think my dad used to give us a penny for every donut box we folded. And I... I think other than maybe a few semesters in college, I've always had a job. Yeah. And I like, I don't know. And I've had mostly good work experiences. I've had some bad bosses and a lot of that has informed my work, like the kind of bosses that end up having a diminishing effect on others versus the kind of bosses that have this like multiplying and amplifying effect on people's intelligence. But um, yeah, I enjoy work. Is that weird? No, I Dan, like work too. I like Dan work Pink too. is the same way. He's um, a, a, an author who he described like early on in his life going into a Macy's store. It's just a big box department store here in the U.S. And just being fascinated by watching people work. And this is Dan Pink who wrote Drive. And I think recently he wrote When and he wrote... Um, to sell as human, a number of really wonderful books, but he's, I think, very similar in that just fascinated by the process of working. Mm, what do you think that is? I mean, is it, what, what, what is it that would fascinate someone about work and, and being, I guess, passionate about working? Well, part of it is, it is a big part of our life is working. And so, you know, I think it's easy to fall in this trap, which is working is the unfulfilling, the difficult, the frustrating part of our job. And that we're happy when we leave work, like, you know, TGIF, like, thank goodness mm. it's Friday, like the work week is done. Yeah. But, you know, my first job out of college, I remember I, I, I kind of got lucky. I landed at this really young Maverick software company and it was just this thrilling experience. The company was Oracle and today they're a really big company, but I joined them when they were relatively small. And I remember Sunday nights and I remember like after dinner, our family would get together for dinner and dinner was over. And I'm like excited, chomping at the bit to go back to work. Like, okay, when do we get Sunday over with so that I can go to work because I loved what I was doing and it was full of wonderful people and challenges, growth, interesting yeah. problems to solve, like just stuff to lock your mind around. <laughs> A lot of people I think would say the opposite Sunday night, they're just dreading going back. So, you know, they just get that Monday itis and, and Mondays. Yeah. Thank God it's Friday. Just want to finish this job. I mean, is it because you love what you do? Do you have to learn how to love what you do? Or is it because a lot of people are just in jobs they don't like or 
Because, I, you know, I can't imagine not working. I mean, what else would I do, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think you have to find your calling and love what you do to find work to be a generative and regenerative work experience. Mm. You know, I think it's about the process of work. Um, you know, I, I know someone in my family who uh, is, you know, in their first job right out of school and absolutely loves the work they do, loves yeah. it, Yeah. but doesn't feel like they belong on the team. Right. And work is miserable. But yet you can do work that you don't necessarily have this incredible passion for, but you can still get incredible fulfillment out of working in a collective, solving a problem, moving something forward, seeing progress. It's incredibly enriching and fulfilling. Yeah. Having a wonderful boss, being a wonderful boss. Yeah, yeah. So in your research, looking at that, I mean, what, what have you found of people that perhaps on one spectrum like work, like going to work, and the people that don't like going to work? Mm. What, what, are the, what are the things that are missing? Well, let's look at that through kind of a very contemporary, timely lens, and that's the lens of burnout. And, you know, we're in this kind of global epidemic of burnout and the great resignation and people like maybe prompted by the pandemic leaving their jobs in droves people is there a great resignation going on like what's i have heard this i don't know enough about it Mm, yeah we're finding that people have used the pandemic or the pandemic has been a catalyst for people resigning in droves or people describing being in a state of exhaustion or, or overwhelm. And it's very easy to look at that and say, oh, people are burnt out because they are working too hard. But what are the figures and, on this? I mean, that we're looking at, I mean, how many people are, are resigning? How many people are burnt out? Or is it just an assumption based on some sort of surveys no, that are... No, no, the, the, you know, the Department of Labor, certainly in the U.S. has been tracking this. You know, there are articles that, kind of are everywhere that are looking at the rate that people are doing it. And I, you know, I don't know what those exact rates are, but they are, they're a pronounced jump from what it's been in the past and like typical year over year kinds of numbers. But I think what's, what's interesting is how companies are responding to this. Mm. You know, we're seeing a lot of companies respond with alarm you know, nobody wants an exhausted workforce. And so the default response has been to take the foot off the accelerator and say, you know what? People are burnt out because they're working too hard. Mm. And so we pick companies are moving to the four day work week, or they're giving people a whole week off to recuperate, regenerate. And I'm, I'm not opposed. I mean, I I, kind of confess that I do enjoy work, but I enjoy rest and relaxation as much as I enjoy work. And I'm not against people taking time off, companies giving people time off. But time away from work might be temporarily restorative, but, but that experience is quite ephemeral. It goes away. Like, you know how it is where you're like, oh, I've been working so much. You take a vacation and you're like, oh, I feel so relaxed. And then how do you feel two days after returning back to work? Hmm. 
in some ways, even more exhausted than you started because you have to pay the price for having been out for a week or two or, or three or whatever your vacation was. And yeah. so it's so easy to assume that burnout is a result of people working too hard. But everything I've seen in my research points to burnout is actually a result of people having too little impact. You know, people coming to work, wanting to contribute wanting to be smart, wanting to take ownership of things, but encountering bosses who are a barrier to that or turning a crank and doing work, but not seeing it go anywhere and not seeing it have influence or impact or efficacy. And I think the real antidote to burnout is, is not to decrease our workloads, but to increase the impact of our work time and our work contribution. Right. So when I look at that, I mean, it makes sense with the pandemic. I think a lot of people are feeling stressed and burnt out and overwhelmed and uncertain. And, and you know, that's going to be noticeable in a society that, that certainly pushes that fear and the stress through the media. I think it's, it's just made it, just overdone it really, in my opinion. But when you're looking at the workplace and people burning out from the workplace, is it the impact that you're talking about within that workplace and the impact they're having for that company, um, for whatever agenda that company has in the world? Or is it a combination of that plus also the impact that their work has on the meaning that they provide their life and the impact yeah. it has on their family? Like, is there two well, parts to it? Yeah. I, I, let me um, offer some thoughts on the part that I probably have the most experience with, sure. which is, and let me share, it's like the effect that, their efforts um, have on on outcomes and the role that leaders play in this. So uh, a piece of research I did about 10 years ago, and we continue to run this research over and over, is we ask people about a time when they were contributing at their max. And they're working for a boss that sees and utilizes their talents, gives them hard problems to solve, asks them difficult questions, gives them ownership of things. And we ask how much of their capability was being utilized. And they're like 100%. Like, man, I I was giving everything I had. And they described that experience as exhilarating, rewarding, thrilling, like nourishing in, in many ways. And then when we'd ask people to describe an experience where they were working for a leader that caused them to hold back or to play it safe these are leaders that I call diminishers and, you know, they may be surrounded by a lot of really smart people, but the way they lead their own knowledge, their own skills, talents, capabilities, sometimes take the foreground in their mind and they don't see and utilize talent around them. When people describe working for these diminishing leaders and I ask how much of your capability was that leader using on average, the number comes back at less than 50%. And then we ask, what was that experience like? Nobody. I can't think. I've, we've, we've got tens of thousands, hundred, probably hundreds of thousands of data points on this. Nobody has ever said, that was a good gig. You know, like they didn't expect much of me. Um, you know, they paid me my full salary, but they never asked me to do anything hard. They underutilized me. People describe that experience of being underutilized as frustrating, exhausting, soul-sucking. 
that, you know, kind of what I've learned studying the best and the worst leaders is that people come to work wired for contribution, wanting to contribute everything they have, wanting to solve hard problems. And when they can't, that's when work becomes soul sucking. That's when it's like TGIF, like, oh, that's when you get the Sunday night dread. Yeah, looking at that clock. When is it time already to get out of here? But think about it. When you get leaders who really see and use your capability and they give you hard, interesting problems to solve, Sunday night's a good night. And, you know, people aren't watching the clock. They're not like, oh, I'm exhausted. You come home energized. Right. And that's, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just from what I've experienced myself in work, you know, those those workplaces that I've worked in that have given me an opportunity to have impact and, and allowed me to really excel, they're the jobs that I really respect. And I look back at some of those and I, the ones that actually I really admire are those ones that were really challenging and always kept me on my toes, um, but I grew so much too. And then I look at the other jobs where I could get rock up and sort of rock out whenever I wanted to. I got paid, but there was no meaning in it. There was there was no ability for me to grow and really use my skill and my potential. Um, and whilst I look at it and go, oh, that was so cruisy and it was a nice time, I don't look back at it with going, that was a great way to spend, you know, six months of my life. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, I can resonate with that. And I'm sure a lot of people listening out there can resonate with that too. And I think... You know, I can only imagine that if you're going to work and spending a large majority of your waking hours in a job that's not giving you fulfillment, you're going to be taking that outside of work too and feeling unfulfilled and like you don't have meaning in life. You know, I had this one experience that really drove this home for me. I had been working at Oracle for 15, 16 years. And you know, I finally had a job that I was qualified for. Everything else was this incredible stretch. And so I'm now like, you know, I'm working as a vice president in the company. I kind of know what I'm doing. I have a very capable staff and my work has gotten fairly easy. And I was a little bit miserable because that challenge was gone. That exhilaration, that feeling of, oh, I'm climbing up a steep learning curve was gone. And I should have felt great about my job because I was super legit at that point. But I actually had this sort of sick feeling about my work. And I wanted to leave to go start a company, to go like pursue something I was super passionate about. But I was very reluctant to leave. And it wasn't because I wasn't willing to take the risk or I was worried about money. I wasn't worried about any of that. I was worried that if I left this steady, easy job to go take a difficult job that I was actually really passionate about, that it would be all consuming. It would take all my energy and my time. And at the time I had four young children. And so I was sort of like taking it for the team. Like, you know what, let me do the right thing for my kids, which is kind of stay in this easy job. And I was resigned to this until a friend of mine who is a dean of a medical school, his name is uh, Jacques Bradwin. He's also trained as a psychiatrist. And Jacques said to me, he, he said, but Liz, don't you think that actually, instead, you know, rather than stay in this safe, easy job and have time for your kids, don't you think your children would benefit by seeing their mother do something challenging and hard? And I'm like, no, it's going to take away from my family. 
I finally realized that there was incredible wisdom in what he was saying. And I, I left and I started doing this, um, taking on this new challenge and I was energized. And when I wasn't working, like, like I brought that energy to my family and I was a better mother because I was doing this. And I do think that when we lack challenge, it not only affects our work, we take that, I don't know, depressive experience home with us. Mm. But when we're exhilarated, like I think we, it, it, it is generative and it brings energy, not just to us, but to everyone around us. Yeah. Well, it would have to, it would have to. Um, do you find, I mean, you said that all the data points say that, you know, in a, in a workplace that allows people to have impact, um, it's, it's much more significant than those workplaces where people are, are not having impact and, and being fulfilled by their work. Like, is that across the board? Like, you just generally know that if people are not being utilised to their full potential that they're not fulfilled with their work and that they actually would much more appreciate um, workplaces that gave them challenge and an ability to step up? Mm. Well, it's, it's research that we've repeated over and over across continents, across industries, across cultures, and we find the same dynamic same is thing. being underutilized is draining and being utilized to our max is exhilarating. Mm-hmm. So what about generations? Is there a difference between, you know, Gen Y and baby boomers and things like that? Have you found any research there that's interesting? Well, um, no, we, we don't see generational differences in, in what that experience feels like. We certainly see generational differences about how much of that, um, how much underutilization people are willing to tolerate. So let's take a sort of the boomers versus millennials on yeah. this. That, you know, the boomer generation was raised on pay your dues, don't say anything, like, kind of buy into the system and someday you'll get to be the boss and you'll get to make the rules. And then you can either inflict the system on other people or you can change the system. That's kind of a, a gross generalization of the logic that so many boomers were raised on. Whereas the millennials weren't raised on this, which is no, like this is wrong. Say something, change the system. So what we're seeing is uh, a whole generation entering the workforce that's demanding better working conditions. And I don't mean, you know, (laughs) better snacks in the refrigerator, better lighting, better tools, like an environment that's conducive to a fulfilling work experience. Yeah. It's interesting. They're just, yeah, they're not really up with it. No, no, that's, I think that's good. Nor should you. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's companies now that, you know, finding staff um, stressed out, overwhelmed, burnt out, and rather than just going, oh, okay, well, let's just make it easier for them. Let's just maybe not put so much pressure on them, give them an extra day off a week. That's certainly not the way to go about. What do we do to put more, excuse me, I've just got a uh, lawnmower or something starting here. What what can we do to um, give them more, you know, get them fulfilled again? make them more involved? Well, I think leaders need to feed their teams a steady diet of challenge. Yeah. You know, a part of the research that I referenced was a study that we did when we asked people to describe 
the degree of challenge in their work yeah. and their degree of satisfaction, what we find is this like near perfect correlation between the two that as challenge level goes up, so does job satisfaction. But of course it tops out at a certain point where there's like a certain degree of challenge becomes, it, it sort of satiates satisfaction and can even have a negative effect beyond a reasonable degree. So like, I think this is one of the art forms of good leadership and certainly yeah. the kind of leaders I describe, you know, as multiplier leaders is they know how to size the challenge right. It's it's what, it's part of, the, I think, the mastery of leadership is knowing how to give someone uh, a Goldilocks challenge, referencing that, you know, old fairy tale, which is like, this bed's too big, this bed's too small, this bed is just right. The best leaders know how to size a challenge where it's just, just beyond somebody's reach. Kind of like the way parents work with like their little toddlers who are learning to walk. And, you know, often what you do is you put an object that they want and it's just out of reach. Now, if you put it too close to them, they'll continue to crawl and they'll just reach over and grab it. If you put that object that they want, that toy, all the way across the other room, they're still going to sit there. But if you put it like just out of their reach, they could like get up, walk over and grab it. And I think that's the art that we need is like, how do you size a challenge that it's just within reach that someone's willing to try, mm. but just far out of reach that someone can't master the challenge with the knowledge and skills that they have today. It's like, in other words, like a size too big. Like, you know, how do you shop for shoes for young children? You don't buy them yeah. to fit you know, unless you're rich and you love to shop, you know, you buy them a size too big and say, oh, don't worry, princess, you're going to grow into these. They'll fit you before you know it. And like, how do you size a challenge? So someone has enough skill to start, but not enough to finish. Mm. Without making it too overwhelming that they don't even try. Mm -hmm. right? And I think it's a really important self-knowledge for a leader to have is to know, do you tend to be an overstretcher or an understretcher. Hmm. For me, I am an overstretcher. Right. I love stretch challenges. And, you know, I have a, a good friend. He worked for me for like 10 years and someone was asking him, well, what's it like to work for Liz? And he's like, oh yeah, like Liz will, is more likely to break you than to bore you. Like she's going to ask you to do things that are crazy hard. And yeah. then she's going to step back and let you fail at that. So like, and I've broken some people and, you know, there's, there's some stories that I'm not particularly proud of where I sized that challenge way too big and somebody failed at it. So you should know, okay, do I tend to oversize it? So how do I like notch it back? So it's more reasonable or check in with people to make sure this is just within reach. Yeah. And see, or that's got to be, be an understretcher. That's got to be a really hard challenge. I mean, that is a hard challenge for leaders is to go, because I know exactly how that feels. You can go in there and, and for me, I've got high expectations. You know, I want people to perform at their very best and I'm going to put it onto them um, and, and not really tolerate anything less in a sense, you know. But sometimes that has a, a, an ability to break people or, or make people go, oh, this is just too much and give up altogether and not try or whatever. Sometimes I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing because maybe it just proves that maybe they're not the right person for that particular challenge or job or whatever it might be. 
Mm. Um, but other times maybe you are putting too much on them too soon. And then what I think I, I've seen myself and in others is that when they put that sort of pressure or challenge onto someone and it's too much for them and they see that they're struggling with it, then they step back and go, oh, I'm not going to do that again. Maybe I'll just go easy on them and tiptoe around them and, and not give them that. But then you're actually going to do yourself more damage, not just for the company, but because of the employees, they're not going to be challenged. So it's a it's like a double-edged sword. Yeah, but I think when you have self-knowledge about where which do you tend to err on? I tend to be an overstretcher. It sounds like you tend to be an overstretcher. So I have to work to confirm that it's within reach or to notch back. Other people tend to be an understretcher and they, they err on the side of safety. Let me give them something they know how to do. Let me give them something to do in their wheelhouse. Let me give them an easy win, which might be appropriate when someone is brand new to the role, needs a confidence boost, but people will stagnate around them. And in many ways, it's equally diminishing. Mm. And so those people have to go, okay, I tend to play it safe. So how do I notch this up? Like, how do I figure out how to give someone something that makes them a little bit nervous, that makes me just a healthy level of nervous? But, you know, either way, like we find what the best leaders do is they they combine and in some ways they create this perfect balance between safety and stretch. You yeah, know, when I yeah. studied the best leaders, I can really boil it down to they create an environment where people feel safe. Like, okay, that challenge is just doable enough that I feel willing to try. Like I feel trusted by this person. I feel like I can make a mistake and recover. I feel like I can make a mistake and confess. I feel like I can tell them the truth. I feel like I can offer a bold idea. I can offer criticism. Like they have that psychological and intellectual safety. But if you work for someone who's all safety, no stretch, Sunday night's miserable. Hmm. Like, okay, I'm turning a crank. My job is easy. It's boring. Um, I'm stagnating. But if you work for someone who's all stretch, no safety, like, hey, bold challenge. I'm going to hold you accountable. I have high expectations for you. And you haven't established the safety people need to get up on that high wire without a net. People are going to freeze up mm -hmm. around you. But man, when you can figure out how to pull those two dynamics together, boom, some real magic happens in the world. So what do we do? What do we do to give them a sense of safety, security, and, and trust but also put that pressure on them. So, so ultimately you want to make sure that their work experience is fulfilling, that they're challenged and that they're growing, yeah? And that's certainly, I, I think as an employee uh, myself, that's what I want from my people. I want them to feel that stretch, that challenge, that fulfilment, but I also want them to know that I've got their back, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it probably starts with asking really good questions. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've kind of, maybe because I've been managing for a lot of years, I've been studying leadership for a lot of years, is that there's a hard way to do that, which is like, yeah. oh man, I have to like, you know, have some x-ray vision to really see what's in their head, what's going on, what are they afraid of, what are they worried about, what are their true capabilities, and I have to somehow divine that. That's the hard way. Yeah. But then there's an easy way to do almost everything, and the easy way is to ask. Like, it might be as simple as asking a question, you know, what's the degree of challenge you are able to handle in the, your job right now? Or what's the challenge you wish 
I was giving you, but I haven't. Like, what's the hard thing that you would love to be asked to do right now? Or like, you know, I've got this really tough challenge. Are you at a place right now where you're ready for it? Mm. And particularly in the pandemic, there's a lot of people who've been juggling multiple challenges on multiple fronts. And I've seen some incredibly smart, capable people say, any other time I'd be able to do that. But right now I kind of need an easy one. Yeah. Give, give me an easy piece of work. Cause right now I got 14 hard pieces of work at home. Yeah. And then so, we do that, but then they might say, okay, I'm back in a place where I'm ready for something hard. Give me, give me one of the challenging assignments. Hmm. Do you find there's any holes in that? I mean, obviously asking questions, finding out how they're feeling, where they're at, and then obviously setting those goals or challenges with them. What are the things that often fall apart when you're doing that? Mm. Well, it might be that people don't feel um, safe enough to even answer that question honestly. Mm. Yeah. Like, oh, no, I have to, like, um, you know, recite the party line. I have to say, oh, here's what I'm supposed to say in answer to that. But then... You know, that's a massive failure of leadership. What are, what are some signs of, um, I guess, a leader giving employees um, challenges? Um, what is a sign that they're not coping, that it is too much, even though you may have asked them and they're not actually admitting that it's too much? You know, you mm. probably get that a lot. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Like they're not making progress on it. They aren't telling you how they're doing like they go dark is almost always like you know this is one where no news is not good news like if you're not hearing from people it's usually a sign that they're they're spinning their wheels um when there's a lot of pretending like convincing oneself that yeah what we're doing is successful when we know it's not those are signs um handshaking uh, i'll have to tell you one this is one that i'm not particularly proud of uh, my second book that I did was uh, a publisher out in the education space asked if I would take a version of my book multipliers and write it for educational leaders. And I initially said, no, that was not something I knew a lot about. And then they persisted and I said, no. And they said, oh, well, we can get you a ghostwriter. I'm like, oh no, I don't want to do that. Oh, we can get you a co-author who knows a lot about education. And I, I said, no, my mother is a former educator. I could write it with her. And so I envisioned this wonderful mother-daughter project. I pulled my mother out of retirement, asked her if she wanted to do this. I explained how hard it would be. And then I started giving her these really big pieces of work because mm. I deeply believe, like, my mom is smart and capable. She's an amazing leader. She's an amazing da-da-da-da. And, and she started to go quiet on me in parts. And at one point she's like, she calls me up and says, Elizabeth, my mom calls me Elizabeth, not Liz, Elizabeth. She says, I can't send that document to you because my hands are shaking right now. And see, I should have known that my mother suffers from some anxiety and I had given her these pieces of work that I'm like, my mom's capable, she can handle it. But I had massively oversized this. And she now was literally shaking. And it was a really painful experience because I had just had this diminishing effect on my mom. And I'm writing a book with her on how to be 
a multiplier leader and avoid diminishing people. And I've just done the very thing that I'm writing about. And, and I'm like, wow, I need to really back this off. And I try, I'm like, oh, mom, you know what? You can do this. Don't worry about it. Like you're this, you're that, like kind of like, mom, you can do this. And I remember what my mom said to me. She said, Elizabeth, you can't give me confidence. Like you can't infuse me. Like I won't be confident and able to do this because you believe in me. She said, my confidence has to come from within. So then I'm like, oh boy, I've really screwed this up. And so now I have to backpedal and go, okay, I can't magically give her confidence, but what can I do to help her rebuild her confidence? Mm. Ah, so we resize some of that. And I'm like, okay, you know what? Here, why don't you take this piece and do an analysis on this? Or can you sum up this article? And so I started to size those things smaller and she was able to do them. And, you know, then I, we got those progressively bigger to where her confidence is back. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the fault in this was entirely mine. I just got overexcited. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. I had to break it down and rebuild, help, her, help her rebuild. Yeah. And I guess everyone's pace is going to be different and how quick they pick things up is going to be different. And certainly I'm probably the same. I have this ability to go, okay, I've given you this and I'll just let you go with that for a bit. But I'm going to then, you know, maybe not give you enough time and then I'm going to throw more things in your plate. And then that's where you probably, you know, can overwhelm people uh, until they get comfortable with the task at hand, you know. So you really do have to assess it case by case, I suppose. Um, But asking questions, what a great way to do it, you know, getting their involvement in that. Yeah, people will tell you, you know, I... I feel like we don't have to be mind readers uh, that people will tell you um, one of the things great leaders do is they look for people's native genius, the thing they do easily and freely. And some people think, Oh, I have to observe that person like at work and, and see what they're brilliant. at. I have to like get inside their head and their mind. I'm like, well, yeah, you can, if you want to be an anthropologist and really put that effort in that works. But the other way that works is just ask them. Like, Lee, what is it the thing that your mind just is built to do? What do you naturally do? What do you do whether it's your job or not? Mm. And if I ask good questions, you're going to tell me exactly what I need to know to be able to use your brilliance at its best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think some people are maybe reluctant to let that out because maybe they don't really know um, or maybe they're too humble yeah, I, I, I do believe, and I do believe it can be very difficult. Some people don't see that. Um, they don't, for for me, the things that I do naturally uh, well, you know, sort of native genius is the term I use for it. All of that I haven't been able to see for myself. All of it has been what colleagues have helped me see. They're like, oh, well, Liz, it's that thing you do so brilliantly. I'm like, what thing I do so brilliantly? Yeah. Oh, you do A, B, C, and D. I'm like, that's not brilliant. Like everyone can do that. That's like counting. Oh, trust me. No, it's not. And so I've had to really pay attention to what is it that other people see in me. But then once you know that, if someone asks me, hey, Liz, you know, what's the thing you do? I, I've learned that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think the um, it is a challenge, isn't it? This whole leadership thing. You've written obviously lots of books about it. Um, is there a particular book that you've written that you'd encourage people to read first, or is it just all of them? Where do you want to direct people? Oh, you know, I certainly would encourage people to go out and read all of them because nobody's going to do that. <laughs> you got them in audio books too, which is great. So, yeah, you know, um, I'll give you a thumbnail on the the, the books that I've written. Um, yeah. The first was a book called Multipliers, hmm. uh, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. And it's a book about how to be the kind of leader that people are at their smartest around and at their best around. And really the key point in that book is not just, oh, diminishers are bad and multipliers are good, but that a lot of the diminishing that's happening in the workplace and in our communities and our families and our friend groups, a lot of it is happening with the best of intentions uh, coming from accidental diminishers. And so, so it goes through some, it helps a leader see the way that they can have a diminishing effect while thinking they're, they're being a really great boss or a great parent mm. or a great friend. Um, I've, and then there's the book, The Multiplier Effect, which is taking that idea and applying it to schools. That's the one that was the mother-daughter project uh-huh. okay. that took yeah. its toll. Uh, I've written a book called Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the New Game of Work. And that is about why we are often at our best when we know the very least. And hmm. then I've just recently um, released a book back oh, about three months ago uh, in the fall for me, spring for you, uh, called Impact Players, How to Step Up, Take the Lead and Play Bigger. I think that's what it's called. I have to check. I have to check to see if that's really the subtitle of the book because I'm suddenly like, no, it's not called that at all. How what did to you say? Take, I can't even remember what I said, but it's called How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger and Multiply Your Impact. Just on the page now, I'm trying to look for it. Anyway, there you go. Yeah, and and this is about, it's about some of the most impactful people in the workplace and how they think and what they do. And it's about how small differences in the way we approach our work Mm. can end up having extraordinary impact. And it really is a book for anyone who wants to get more out of their job than just be a position holder. Yeah. It's about, you know, people who want to be difference makers at work and in the world. Yeah, yeah. The impact players. I'll stick all the links in the show notes here, guys, at thehiddenwide.com. They're all on Amazon as well. Um, is there a website for you, Liz? I think I've got one here. Yeah, I think um, the, the, a good website to go to is thewisemangroup.com. Wisemangroup.com, yeah. And there's websites for the various books, impactplayersbook.com. That'll find them from that that one, Wiseman Group. All your books are listed there. Um, And you're also on uh, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, I see. So Mm -hmm. probably best to – where's the best place for people to reach out and say hi? Well, probably LinkedIn. LinkedIn, Um, yeah. Yeah. Good platform. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Liz. Well, it's very nice to talk to you. I'm glad I pressed the record button. Guys, check it out at thehiddenwhy.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.
Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon